A three, two, one, over to you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Space Camp Podcast. I will be driving the boat today. Um, it's your host, Kyle, here with my co-host, Torsten. How you doing, Torsten? I'm doing pretty well. We haven't done a podcast in a long time, so it's good to, uh, good to get back in there and talk about something, especially with all the chaos that's going on these days. Yeah, it'll be nice to kind of deep dive into something that isn't in the news necessarily, maybe knock off some rust. Yeah. Um, so uh, speaking of that, uh, today our topic is going to be the Unabomber. <laughs> kind of just out of the blue the just unabomber the unabomber unabomber stands for uh the u and n is for university the air is for airline and that was the nom the moniker given to him by the fbi um the unabomber is theodore kaczynski uh ted uh, he was born in 1942 in chicago to a working class family um as a young student as teachers described him as healthy and well-adjusted uh, until he reached his fifth grade uh, class level where he scored a 167 IQ and was able to skip the sixth grade completely. I think that I think that's what already going to set you apart in life. And, you know, if you if you score that high, obviously you're operating on like a different level. Yeah, it's probably pretty hard to relate to kids your age i mean in in fifth grade i was i think i was like probably slapping myself with rubber bands so <laughs> probably not uh much of a yeah. conversation to have with a person whose iq is in the top what is that one out of every five hundred thousand people that's really so there's yeah. one in five hundred thousand has that level of iq i thought it would have been higher like more people or yeah I'll think about that so that's like there's less than at that point there's 250 million people right mm-hmm. so as a fifth grader he had an iq that was higher than there's probably a dozen people in the country with an iq of at least that yeah so you said five hundred thousand. i think that's what the math comes out to 167 iq so by that, if we have a population of roughly 7 billion, there would be over 1,400 individuals with Ted Kaczynski level of intelligence. In the world, yeah. But wow. also remember, this was in the 60s where the internet isn't a thing and you probably only have met 200 people in your life at this Do point. You know what? Do you know what uh, Elon Musk's according to the some random internet site, what his estimated IQ is based on IQ-test.net is for Elon Musk. <laughs> now, what is it? Take a guess. Ted Kaczynski, 167. 130. 155. So, and it's a, it's a, what? It's a, uh, a logarithmic curve, right? The higher you, it's harder The each point you move up, you pass more, more people, right? I would imagine. So it gets like exponentially harder to find someone with one point higher than it would at an earlier stage. Yeah. Which will, um, will kind of, what, what, one of the things I find interesting, if you just can contrast a guy like Ted Kaczynski with just like a phenomenal IQ or just uh, on 
the far end of the spectrum of the bell curve compared to a guy like Elon Musk is like, what happened in their, uh, yeah, what happened when they were young? And I've read little blurbs on Elon Musk, but I, I don't really know too much about it. One of the things that I heard is that he had a, that he grew up and it just seemed like he had a very supportive family, a, a very support, strong supportive system within his family. And so he was reading all these books at an early age. And I think his sister called him like the, the human dictionary or something. So if the family had a question, they would just ask Elon and he would usually be able to <laughs> recite it from one of the thing, one of the many books that he read. That's amazing. I wonder if that like 160 is like the break point for when people turn like can function normally in society to just being so high above everything else that it's hard for them to relate to other people. Yeah, I'd be curious. My my guess is that it all depends. I mean, a, a significant portion depends on the support structure that you have around you. Yeah, and I feel like someone who probably already uh, has a tough time fitting in, moving up a grade. When you, how old are you in fifth grade? I would say like ten, twelve, or thirteen. Maybe you were. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I, th- I think you're. I think you're like ten, right? Because you start. I don't know. Let's see. How old are you in fifth grade? Eleven years. Okay, eleven years old. <laughs> like fifteen, sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> Not asking about you, Torsten. The average kid. Shut up. Yeah, that's that's a huge difference. Moving from a 10, 11 year old to 13, 14 year olds. Yeah. And that was maybe, maybe, you know, from our outside perspective looking in, one of the things that began to lead him astray, potentially. Yeah, especially as a shy kid, right? Yeah. You you jump up to another class and all of a sudden you're with all these kids that you're way smarter than, but you just, you're younger. And so you're probably smaller too. So you probably, and it sounds like he was bullied too. Um, when he moved yeah. up a grade. Yeah, it made it seem like, because he was already a shy, quiet person, um, this article was saying, but they seemed like that was like a really, a bit, like probably the first turning point in, yeah. his, in, his, uh, in his life. Um, so then after that... Uh, but what kind of turning point would that be? Just do you, you probably just become a little bit more introspective. Yeah, probably more isolated, less, probably. Yeah. yeah, probably more isolated. So then, yeah, then he actually skipped another grade uh, during high school, and he ended up graduating high school at 15 years old. And, By taking uh, a, like a summer course too, right? But still, you're yeah, graduating when you're very young. Because I mean, most people graduate when they're 18. So, and I think I heard too, like in I don't know if it was in high, I believe it was in high school. He was just again super smart, and so he joined the mathematics club, and they were called like the the briefcase kids or something. Yeah, and he, uh, I guess they had their notebooks or something carried around in a briefcase. But like all of the other math kids said, like he was easily the smartest, and uh, he was just super quiet until you got to know him. And then as soon as you got to know him, he would just like talk your talk your head off, just nonstop yeah. about probably everything that he absorbed up until whatever fifteen years of age. Yeah, and then that's what's nuts too is graduating early. Not only that, but he also got a full scholarship to Harvard when he was sixteen. 
So he was getting sent off to Harvard before he even had a driver's license. Yeah. And um, yeah. Uh, have you have you ever seen Goodwill Hunting? Yes. And it seems like you know. So in that, Matt Damon is just like this uber genius. But then he he has like a little bit of a support structure of his friends who are, are kind of guiding him in a kind of a in a, a life of you know beating people up and getting into altercations and being arrested but then he has that one figure um robin williams who steps into his life and kind of like steers him straight yeah and it doesn't seem like so we'll get into that his sophomore okay um so uh just some of his classmates at the time uh they described him as uh personally reserved but they all they regarded him as a genius like he was obviously this is at harvard right at harvard yeah, yeah when he was 16 years old so these are adults that see this and, child as a as a genius and some of them said that it seemed it seemed like he just wasn't emotionally prepared yeah well i mean just think about it could you imagine getting even we went to marquette getting sent off to Marquette at 16. I feel like I wasn't emotionally prepared as a 18 year old going yeah. to college. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So then uh, 16. Yeah. So uh, his sophomore year, that's where he kind of almost had that moment of someone that could help push him into kind of like the right path, almost like goodwill hunting. Um, so he, he uh, entered this case study that was uh, led uh -huh. by uh, Henry Murray. And so basically he spent an entire year with Murray um, talking about like personal beliefs and their aspirations for the world and what they think, um, what they think would like help the world going forward. And then the next year, um, the government agents actually used it, used their yeah, they, own words. It's crazy. Yeah. They write yeah, this entire paper about yourself and your, all your thought processes that you've developed over the years and basically your, your structure of the world and what's going on and how, how things are, are put together. And then you have one of these, these, um, I don't know, basically, is it, was it a CIA, CIA guy? Yeah, I think it was run by the CIA. Um, and it was part of their research on MK ultra. Uh, researching mind control and suggestivity. So basically what they did to these kids after they uh, spent all this time really flushing out their personal beliefs and aspirations, uh, they hired a lawyer and strapped them in a chair with electrodes to monitor brain waves and stuff. And uh, they, they tore they, a new one. They would confront and belittle the subject, making vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attacks using the content of the essays as ammunition in order to monitor the subject's physiological reactions. And the encounters were filmed and what their expressions of anger and sadness uh, played back to them. The experiment lasted three years with someone verbally abusing and humiliating Kaczynski each week. Kaczynski spent 200 hours as part of the study. It's like, holy... So yeah, you know, so imagine goodwill hunting. <laughs> if the psychologist that ended up being his friend just completely did a 180 and just started using all the subjects that they talked about and fleshed out to just berate him, I'm shocked at 
this Henry Murray. Like he, I feel like he's a a big contributing factor to the the da- you know like damaging a lot of people. Let's see here. Was an, Henry Murray was an American psychologist at Harvard University where he conducted a three year long series of psychologically damaging experiments on undergrad students, one of whom was Ted Kaczynski, known as the Unabomber. I can't believe that that. Uh, then again, like, I guess you just don't really. It's a, I guess with our hindsight's 2020. So in that era, you just don't know what you're going to get. And I guess they're their goal out of the experiments was how to control people. And kind of, I think that it was targeted towards uh, being able to extract information from uh, Russian spies. Cause this was like during the red scare, right? This was, isn't that shocking that you could do, you, you would think that would be beneficial to a young developing mind of a young, you know, someone getting into college who's probably 17 at the time. Like what, yeah. How, could you imagine just tearing a young kid like that apart all for the greater good like yeah that seems bad. like just like an evil experiment well they say that they might have had good intentions but the road to hell is paved with good intentions right yeah what really matters is like what you do on a instance to instance basis not the goal you're shooting for um, yeah. Anyway, after after that, he ended up still. He graduated with his bachelor's in math uh, at 20 years old, um, where he was accepted into the uh, doctoral program of mathematics at the University of Michigan. And uh, and I just during some quotes during this during this too, like it seemed like probably going through these experiments, he began to socially isolate himself even more. And one of the people described him in his dorm or wherever they resided as like he would, he would kind of avoid eye contact and just book it into his room and slam the door. And then he would just study all this intricate math. Yeah. um, And just really get, get himself lost in that world. It's probably the only escape he had. Right. Cause every single time it seems like that he's trying to put trust in somebody, they've just screwed him over. Um, so so like, uh, the, the Murray guy, yeah, the Murray guy, uh, Henry his, Murray, his, <coughs> his, uh, his people uh, bullying him in the past. And then uh, there's some later stuff where like his brother fired him from his job and all, all this stuff. Like it seems like every single person in his life ended it's up probably, at the end. Yeah, it's probably he's just probably a very challenging person to deal with. I think early on, too, his mom was considering him, considering enrolling in him into some of these autistic studies yeah but she felt like it might kind of um impair his his socializing with other people so she opted not to which is funny because that probably would have been a a good thing in his life at that point but i, I mean but back who, then they didn't know yeah. anything about that really who knows how they ran those were they screaming at the kids or they yeah especially in the early 60s <laughs> like <laughs> they having them write down all their deepest beliefs and then using that against them yeah you never know um so yeah here's some quotes from uh because apparently when he was in his uh doctoral studies like he he did leave lasting impressions on his professors Um, yeah they said uh he was an unusual person he was not like the other graduate students he was much more focused about his work and he had a drive to discover mathematical truth 
Um, and also, uh, in 1967, his doctoral dissertation, dissertation on boundary functions won the uh, Summers Myers Prize for Michigan's best mathematics dissertation of the year. And his uh, doctoral advisor call, called it the best he's ever directed. And he would guess that maybe 10 or 12 men in the country could understand and appreciate it. <laughs> that is insane. Yeah. Like, that's... That is ridiculous. Um, and then, yeah, he kind of went into a teaching job for like two years. And and uh, his students kind of just said that he was very distant and would just teach directly out of the books and refuse to answer questions. And uh, those are like the professors that you, I mean, you'd obviously give a professor like that a poor score, you know, if you were yeah. to rate them on, on some type of system. Yeah, like rate my professor or whatever, like they have now. He seems really see. smart, but he, you know, he doesn't help us at all. He just reads the book to us. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have like the people skills. And probably, to be honest, he's probably uninterested because he was teaching like, uh, what was it, like geometry. And it, it didn't seem like it was necessarily like the super high level math that probably was of interest to him. Yeah. Or maybe just generally fearful too. Just being in that setting around, I'm I'm sure he had some extreme social anxieties at that point in time. Yeah, and then being a professor at Berkeley, which is a huge college, with all those people staring at you and you're the center of attention, that's probably one of the worst uh, experiences for someone who has that, that kind of social anxiety. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so he did that for two years, um, and then he, he just randomly uh, quit. Moved and moved back in with his parents uh, for a couple of years where he. Yeah, they he, said he quit abruptly. And yeah. there was just, yeah. And I guess a sign, you know, he, he, he obviously didn't have too many relationships there that he could go and talk to someone and, and kind of wind things down, just quitting out of the blue. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, the guy called it sudden and unexpected resignation, just didn't bother, just, just quit. Um, he moved back to yeah. He moved back to Illinois, and that's where he was uh, working in his dad's old factory, where his brother was a foreman. And, I bet uh, you, to a certain extent, that'd be pretty satisfying. Just, just quit. Yeah, just walking just, away. Yeah, just like getting, just like you're at work and lunch is starting or something. And you just pick up like your stuff that you want from your desk, and then just pack up your bags and just walk out. Just leave. I feel like yeah. that's kind of like the fuck you money, though. It's like you realize you won the lottery. And you're like, okay, it's time. Or just pull a, this guy. <laughs> basically, from what he said, he basically was only there to save up enough money so he could purchase land and get away from everything. So that's once what he, he said later on in life, right? Yeah. So probably once he achieved that, he, he didn't see any use of, of having connections with anybody, right? Any of those people anymore. So he probably just left. I wonder why. Do you think do you think that when he talked with other people, he like felt like he wasn't gaining any value? Or do you think he just had that that just being very uncomfortable around people where he felt like he had better things to do and wanted to study more math or study some of his interests rather than converse with people? I think it probably all stems from just like the uncomfortability with people. But I bet you the way that he saw it in his mind is he's uncomfortable, but also like he's so much smarter than all these people like that. They can't, they have nothing to offer me and it's a waste of time. But it, I'm sure if someone was nice 
and just wanted to have like a nice conversation and didn't judge was not judgy at all about his his actions i'm sure you probably would have loved that because that's not like it? how he was in the past you sent me an article uh from the mises institute about how you can still gain something from other people even if they are wrong yeah do you think did that you, what's that did you read it yeah yeah i think uh i think that would have been a good a good thing for him to have learned at some point in the past and i think that's like a just a normal everyday human thing that we do without having to be taught that right so yeah i would agree so one of the one of the quotes that that was in the article by john stuart mill was that he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that his reasons may be good and no one may be able to refute them but if he is equally unable to refute the reasons on the opposite side if he does not so much as know what they are he has no ground for preferring either opinion so yeah. i mean that's I wonder, a powerful quote i wonder like in this context if despite being like leagues of having a level of intelligence that is leagues ab above and beyond what anybody else can maybe even fathom does that quote still apply i think it does because at the end of the day iq isn't everything right like sure you can process information in a different way and probably better ways more efficient ways but there's still lessons that you can learn from these people that maybe can't process but have happiness so maybe you can have a high IQ, but you can learn about the EQ side of it, right? Yeah. And I think kind of goes, been... maybe get, goes a little bit back to that, that goodwill hunting thing when uh, Robin Williams sits down, Matt Damon, he's like, you know, you can probably tell me like, all these quotes from Shakespeare and, and tell me, like, you know, all the math mathematical equations for a b and c and he just kind of goes down the list of all this esoteric these esoteric bits of information but then he he talks about some of the intangibles like can you tell me what it's like to walk inside the sistine chapel and what it smells like and just kind yeah. of those that experiential knowledge that that is you know that you can't get out of a textbook yeah and yeah, so and it's something this, that i think a lot of people discount when they're younger and they're like, well, it doesn't, that kind of knowledge isn't important because it's yeah. not, it's not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's not objective knowledge, but at the end of the day, that's, that's actually probably more important, right? Is all those subjective experiences that end up making your memories. Uh, yeah. As long as, as long as you're, <laughs> you're kind of guiding your subjective I think through talking with others and and gathering more information to kind of steer you in a, yeah. the, a, in a um, a solid direction. So that's like that's where I think this. So 1969, after he resigned, he moved back uh, to his parents' hometown in Illinois, and uh, he worked at two, for two years with his brother at his dad's uh, old sausage making factory. How his many siblings? Did it say how many siblings he had? He just had the one brother. Okay. Um, but his brother was like the foreman, like the boss of the factory at this point. And it seemed like uh, 
Ted so had his first uh, like encounter with like a crush and being in love with somebody. You used you dated a girl went on like five dates with her, but due to his like extreme social awkwardness, uh, she ended up saying like I don't think this is going to work out. Basically, so the next day after that, he started writing little little rhymes, little limericks about the girl who also worked at the factory and posted kind of, everywhere. In kind of a derogatory way. Yeah, like uh, saying her butt is gross or something. Like, But, I don't know, in a little cutesy rhyme. But uh, Better than what Kyle just put forward just now. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not 167 IQ, I'll tell you your, that. Your butt is nasty. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> I don't even know. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, then his brother ended up having to fire him because he wouldn't stop. Like, he just kept posting these notes all over. Like, they said it was like 150 notes or something. Wow. That he wrote. There's, so like, there's kind of an example of that maybe extreme focus and just going on a tangent with something that maybe is misguided, that is misguided, you know? Yeah. And just, and just, yeah, taking it to the extreme. Um, but yeah, then his brother versus, had to end up firing Versus him, if right? he had like a good mentor or one of his buddies and he's like, yeah, you know what I'm going to do to get back at her? I'm going to write all these limericks about how awful she is. And I'm going to present it to the whole company just, you know, by posting it on the walls or however he disseminated yeah, it. Taping it everywhere. And then, and then his boy would be like, uh, no, I wouldn't recommend that. Like, yeah, just having like some awful. sort of having some sort of companion to bounce like that kind stuff off of like if you get dumped like go have a beer with somebody right like just talk yeah. all that stuff out but he, he was so isolated that he just had to sit there and like let those ideas just twist in his brain until i think it, that's a perfect it, example of like yeah the the absolute brilliance of an individual but the lack of of emotional intelligence you know yeah. where he he because those act did the in terms of uh, looking at those actions, did they serve him in any way? The, the only way they served him was kind of like gratifying his ego to potentially hurt this individual. But in yeah. terms of like any form of being constructive, uh, you know, there was nothing there. Yeah, it didn't help out at all. And at the end of the day, all it did was hurt him, right? Because that, that was like this final betrayal before turning into the Unabomber was his brother firing him and then him just leaving full time to go live in Montana at, at the cabin they built together. Oh, it's his brother's cabin? Like him and his brother's cabin? Yeah, they actually built it by hand. That's cool. Like together. Yeah, it was actually, it seemed like it was a, like a pretty cool situation until, yeah, until that last straw. So he just books it, books it out of there. He was working for his brother. His brother's like, okay, hey, you know what? <laughs> this isn't working. Yeah, you gotta stop. It's it. probably pretty embarrassing for his brother. Oh, I'm sure. Imagine, yeah, imagine if uh, one of your brothers or good friends that working at the same job just started just texting, yeah. like texting or sending emails to the entire company. That's oh. just berating someone's appearance and that's and, just super cringy. Yeah, you're like, yeah. oh, hey, you know, I got you this job. Please yeah, don't stop. Uh, you know what? Yeah, it's probably. Yeah, I think you've had enough. Yeah, we're gonna have here. to fire you. <laughs> how would you how would you actually react to your brother like dude I mean, what, I, what I do you, you have to do what like, the hell are you doing yeah, stop like 
go like yeah leave that's all you can say especially if they don't stop right yeah yeah so poor it, brother it seemed like it was kind of the last and then after that it was basically his himself just further isolated in his cabin in montana no electricity no running water just making wow bombs. so he wonder if he just had an outhouse then well i think yeah no running water so i'm sure he just went in the woods and he lived off the land. He hunted for his stuff. They said the estimated in today's value that he lived off of $400 a year. <laughs> That's actually really cool that like, he was yeah, able like to if do it, that. If it just ended there, it wouldn't be a bad story. Yeah. I, if you took me out and put me in a cabin in Montana, I'm pretty sure I would die within like the first two winter. Yeah. <laughs> the first, yeah, the first winter. Well, actually, I could probably survive for a little. If I gathered enough wood, I could probably. But, but yeah, you have to go get your water. Everything's frozen. You got to well, melt how it, long? Probably. How long can you survive without eating? It's three months. Yeah, eating's not the the hard or, part. Water, or if, unless we go back to that story that we had in a previous podcast of the guy who survived for like two years without eating. That yeah, way, just, like, I guess it just depends on how much you prepare beforehand. If you were smart enough to get up to 500 pounds, then <laughs> don't need to eat yeah, ever. <laughs> that would be slightly less impressive then. Yeah. But yeah, he's, he's a skinny dude. So it was impressive that he was able to survive. Um, yeah. But yeah, just like that was that kind of I think that kind of further cemented like what ended up being his manifesto was just living out in the wilderness alone and just having these thoughts with no one to talk to, right? Yeah, you're just, you're just focusing on your own model of the world. And yeah. his model... No one, no, one to, no one to bring up any counterexample. His model was, yeah, at that point in time, you know, you're verbally abused for three years in college as a young man. You are... But not you just know, verbally abused, like systematically like designed to break you yeah yeah you are socially isolated in school you know you're on a different level and you can't really relate to people and so just through the years just over and over just continued to be rejected by society in the way that in your construction of the world yeah in the way that he thought it should be it wasn't going as planned so he yeah. decided I don't, I don't fit in. I'm going to leave. And yeah. yeah, if the story ended there, it would be fine. Right. But in, uh, 1978 is when he had his first victim of a mail bomb at Northwestern university in Chicago. And he just mails him a homemade bomb. Right. Oh no. He puts a return address of the, of the professor's address. Yeah. Professor is just like, you know, at Northwestern is like, what, you know, what is this? Like this, I didn't send anything out. So he, like contacts the the campus police or something, and then one of the police guys is like, "Oh, well, okay, I'll just open it up," and it blows yeah. off part of his hand, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it was gross. They showed pictures in one of the documentaries I was watching. Oh, was like it bad? He's missing, yeah, he's missing like four of his fingers on his on his oh. hand, which is weird because he he tried to. So, do you want, should I start reading the his his uh? manifesto yeah why not oh you want to just read that first paragraph yeah i'll read the first paragraph and then we'll kind of say like look at maybe some of the occupations that he was targeting so but first of all so yeah he just he starts his first bombings in 1978 and he just continues to bomb for the next 
what is it? 20 years. 20 years and is able to sophisticatedly evade, you know, for the most part, getting detected. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. through. Throwing like them off through. Force like, of will. Like, he would, he would take, like, a two-day trip just to send it out to yeah. make sure he tracked track back to Montana. And then he would throw them off by putting misleading clues in there, by by putting little stamps on each one or leaving a little letter that was kind of confusing to just kind of throw everybody off. Yeah. Like he, he, to him, this was him finally getting to show everybody how much smarter he was than everyone else. You think so? I think so. That's why I think that's why he left those little, like at the end, like it was like a game to him. Right. I, I wonder, was it a game or was it just his way to continue to be, to throw the, the team of people searching for him off? Well, I think in order to think that your ideas are that important, you have to have a pretty big ego, right? And I think to him, putting in these little things was like an ego boost. Like he's like, I'm smart. Like I know, like I'm gonna send, I'm gonna put this in there, and they're gonna find it, and they're gonna focus on like this stamp for two years. Yeah. Well, I mean, he had the, he had the confidence. He had the the narcissism to continue to think that he could get away with it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, he, he would have, if he didn't end up getting this manifesto published, which was his end goal, actually. So he, I mean, he succeeded in what he wanted, which was to get his, his message out to everybody. Yeah. So uh, I think that's I'll, a good way of setting, setting that up for the, the intro paragraph. And maybe we should just talk about it briefly. You know, the reason that we selected this is just because he's a fascinating character who's popped up in in kind of pop, pop culture these days in terms of like Netflix documentaries of all the actual books that have been probably written on him. And we thought it would just be interesting to kind of dissect this person and dig a little bit into the manifesto and, and see, you know, what is this extremely intelligent person according to, you know, IQ test? What does he think? What's his perspective of the world? And how does that jive with what's going on in, in our world today? And are there things that make sense? Are there things that just seem like they're just completely slanted? And, you know, it seems like that would have to be the case given his approach to um, achieving his ultimate goal. But we just yeah. thought it was an interesting idea, you know, what, what this person is like and what his ideas are and wanted to dissect that but by no means do we endorse any of those actions like no, we have to yeah, say those I, I hope that goes without saying obviously like initiating force on someone not in self-defense is always wrong and that's what he did so yeah he's a a garbage person but maybe he has good ideas we'll see uh i haven't read it completely you haven't read it completely so uh Let's let's Despite, here. We'll be the first one of maybe a, a couple more um, podcasts. Just continue to to look into some of the ideas that are presented. Maybe yeah, maybe try to deconstruct, or maybe there are good points. Um, it, it would be hard to imagine a such a smart guy creating a thirty five thousand word essay and not having any good points. So. Um, but yeah, but also there. yeah, where where is he misguided too? Will be exactly. an interesting question. And then yeah, that's kind of what the background was for. 
was in order to see. So like we now we know his background. So now maybe that can help point to why some of these beliefs come up. Um, so he says the industrial revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased life expectancy of those who live in advanced countries, but have destabilized society and have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world to physical suffering as well, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. It will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering, and it may lead to increased physical suffering even in advanced countries. So, yeah, it's, you know, just that statement right there. I think what I had said earlier to you, Kyle, was that it almost sounds like the beginning of some sci-fi thing like you you know some terminator thing you know some some terminator novel yeah. about this dystopian society and how everything is going to eventually collapse and so it's a compelling first paragraph um yeah this- to me it reminds me a lot of uh wally where yeah. where like the technology is advanced so much that all people do is they sit in their chairs they get fat and watch tv right there's no connecting anymore Cut out a little bit I said that all they do is sit in their their moving chairs and they drink their their huge cokes and they watch TV and they're fat. They can't walk. They don't interact with other people. And it's yeah. just about almost becoming like a cog in the system, right? Yeah, it's that that's a an interesting analogy. Yeah, are we moving towards kind of this dystopian Wally society? Um, is there some truth to what he says? And does he? potentially just discount the ability, the, the human spirit to kind of resolve those technological, you know, the, the, the great advances you can make with technology, but also how the, to the detriment of society. But, you know, the, the amazing ability of human beings to innovate and solve problems. So with the recognition of a problem, do you think that he discounted human beings ability to solve that? that problem of moving too far in direction too technologically advanced without the benefits of of kind of this this human interaction and and what you lose there without the human interaction yeah absolutely and i think uh when he wrote this like in the 90s um he he basically turned himself off from all this like pop culture, all this stuff that actually does kind of drive further connections. Like there's certain cultural moments that now everybody can experience. And I think that's one of the things that he discounts uh, as a, a positive of technology. Um, I mean, also technology, especially in medicine has done wonders. Uh, the infant mortality rates lowest it's ever been in the history of the human race Uh, people are living longer than ever all this stuff like it used to be if you got an infected cut on your arm you're just dead could be 30 years old but uh, antibiotics have changed that and kind of gives people second chances and i think that's something that is discounted with um with this kind of like almost like a like a luddite 
type outlook on the world. Yeah, there is uh, to be uh, to be the devil's advocate here. There's a book by Tolstoy which goes into this character. Um, I'm gonna call him um, Igor for lack of a better Russian name. <laughs> and Igor is this like politician, and he's just this really well-to-do guy, and he's so well connected within his space and within his community and kind of this arrogant guy who has everything going for him. Then one day, all of a sudden he starts to feel a little bit weak and he starts to, to slowly decline and continues to get weaker. And so his wife um, starts contacting all the best doctors in the area. And what they do is they try every little medical piece of advice and you know the, the smartest guys around them and they're trying everything and they're so optimistic they're telling them hey we're going to beat this we're going to do everything that we can and he continues to decline but nobody is willing to accept that he's declining except for he has this kind of this servant who's kind of this poor guy who actually engages with him and kind of talks to him as if he knows what Igor is actually going through. Yeah. And he actually takes care of him as a human being, despite, you know, all the other doctors having this extreme optimism and tell him he's going to get well, despite what is actually happening in his world. And he finds that what he longs is just that human connection. And um, there's a writer, his name is Atul Gawanda, and he makes the analogy between that writing of Tolstoy and that story to today's advances in technology, where you have a, a, as you had mentioned, you have all these technological advances in medicine, and we're keeping people um, alive for a, a lot longer. And his argument is at what cost? Because you have these people who have lived these long and hopefully, you know, edifying lives. Um, but to a certain extent, they're just being kept, they're being kept alive and then yeah. they're beginning to slowly, um, disintegrate, you know, with, with old age within these nursing homes and they begin to have a lack of freedom. You can't really go do what you want to do. Your body's not there. You're, you, you could sustain a fall and you could continue to go downhill. So maybe just, uh, uh, to <laughs> speak in terms of, how this initial saying, this initial paragraph could be a little bit correct in that, you know, we have all of this technology and we're keeping people alive for longer than, than ever. But the question is at what cost? Because how, you know, how engaged are you to go to some of these nursing homes and, and interact with some of these old people, um, in today's society, I feel like they're they're almost socially isolated, and it can be to the detriment of these people. And so the technology is not actually advancing society, but bringing it backward. Almost a zombification of society. Yeah, where things are not able to die uh, when they're naturally supposed to, mm -hmm. and it's kind of just that slow decay that happens and just continues over time. I, I can, I mean, I, it's, I, I think the important thing is technology offers the choice. 
Yeah. I think, I think unfortunately so many people now, like especially with older loved ones don't really like to take the older loved ones choices into consideration when making some of these, like uh, the perfect example for me is that the Harry Truman story that you shared with me. You want to describe that? Yeah. So uh, Harry Truman, uh, I think you could do a better job. He was this like world war one pilot. He lived like, you know, pretty active life had gone through a lot. Um, and just this, you know, incredible experience as, as, uh, as a human being. And later on in life, he was living it right under Mount St. Helen and he was 80 years old, but he was still like active and he got up on his roof and he was shoveling and he is shoveling the roof off at 80. I feel like it's just a pretty incredible endeavor. Yeah, but he ends up falling off and and kind of gets beat up or if breaks his hip. And so there's all these people saying like, oh, you shouldn't you know, you shouldn't be doing these things. And he's like, you know, I'm going to I've lived for 80 years and you're trying to tell me what to do. Like, I'm yeah. going to live my life. You can't interfere with that. And he the, then a little bit later on, he kind of recovers from those injuries. And Mount St. Helen at the time is is almost ready to explode and so you have all these members in society who are like hey let's get this old man out of here let's save him and what his point is is he's like no you know like i'm doing what i want to do this is my place and if the mountain's gonna blow then i'm gonna go with it you know like i you can't tell me that it i'm better off by going with you guys because you know this is this this is my life here yeah, and I, I'm going to take control of it. And to a certain extent, that's just, uh, you know, I think that there's, I think there's currently some type of mural or statue of him drinking his Coke and whiskey while he's kind of telling <laughs> off the reporters and the police and saying, you know, get the hell out of here. I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah, if it's my time to go, it's fine. Like, yeah, I don't need to be kept alive for another 10 years in a nursing home sitting there and slowly breaking down, right? Like if, if it's my yeah. time to go now, it's my time to go now and I'm going to go out on my own terms. And so maybe all the technological advances in that situation would point to, hey, let's protect this guy. Let's save him. We know that the mountain's going to blow and it is in his best interest in terms of his well-being to stay alive. And so let's, it, the, there was the discussion of arresting him and taking him into custody so that he didn't end up getting engulfed in the volcano. Yeah. And then the, the, the thing that I thought was the most shocking of the reason why they didn't arrest him was purely out, out of bad optics. Yeah. It wasn't that there was no reason to arrest him and he's free to make his own choice. That wasn't the, the reason. The reason was because it would have been bad optics because the media was so involved. Yeah. They didn't want to have that on their hands yeah local sheriff police dragging or, dragging around dragging an 80 year old away world from war house. one veteran yeah that actually makes me want to uh read these next two paragraphs in what? the manifesto real quick um i i was kind of just skimming them and they they seem super interesting and it's kind of a thing that it's cutting out uh the second and third paragraphs i was kind of skimming and it seems super interesting and kind of offers a a different way of looking at the reason why techno the technological system isn't necessarily advantageous. Um, number two goes, the industrial technological system may survive or it may break down. If it survives, it may achieve a low level of physical and 
psychological suffering, but only after passing through a long and very painful uh, period of adjustment and only at the cost of permanently reducing human beings and many other living organisms to engineered products and mere cogs in the social machine. Furthermore, if the system survives, the consequences will be inevitable. There is no way of reforming or modifying the systems so as to prevent it from depriving people of dignity and autonomy. If the system breaks down, the consequences will still be very painful, but the bigger the system grows, the more disastrous the results of its breakdown will be. So if it is to break down, it had best break down sooner rather than later. So he's just calling for things to to be shook up to end the business as usual in his perspective of the industrial technol- technological system. At, and so far that the more reliant we get on on technology, the more that we stop becoming individuals and more we become just an operator of the technology to drive the social machine forward. So I, I think I think there was a good uh, analogy I read about the invention of the automobile. In the the invention of the automobile started off as a wonderful thing. Now people could travel all over the country, right? They can go wherever they want. Freedom of movement. However, because now this technology was available, everybody was forced to basically buy it or now be hypermobile because no longer are can you get your groceries walkable distance from home. Uh, jobs became further away. So now we rely on this technology and the, abil- the ability to be so mobile so much that without it, we couldn't uh, survive and feed ourselves. Yeah. You get too reliant on something. And then if it's taken away, you can be helpless to a certain extent. It's, a, it's a interesting, an interesting way of looking at it, I think. So the more, I think what he's trying to say is that the more that these new technologies get accepted as just parts of everyday life, the more that they're expected to be used every day in all of our interactions. I think another good example is a cell phone, right? Mm-hmm. The ability to talk and communicate with anybody at any point of time all over, no matter where they are. But now you're kind of expected to be reachable at all points because of this. So not only can you reach someone at any time, but now you're expected to be reachable at any time. Yeah. Which is not fun all the time. I I just, I thought that was, that was an interesting take because it's kind of that double, the, the double edged sword of technology. Yeah. And a couple, couple way that the, a couple descriptions as far as how the manifesto was received. It was greeted in 1995 by thoughtful people as a work of genius or at least profundity, and as quite sane. Um, its pessimism over the direction of civilization and its rejection of the modern world are shared, especially with the country's most highly educated. Uh, and then another one, a carefully reasoned, artfully written paper. And then if it is the work of a madman, then the writings of many political philosophers are scarcely more sane. So it seemed like it was relatively well received. Um, one person says that Kaczynski was reprehensible for murdering and maiming people. 
and but precisely correct in many of his ideas. Mm. So it, it'll be interesting to continue to break this apart. Uh, but it sounds like there, there might be a couple good ideas in here. But overall, everything has to be taken, taken with a massive grain of salt in terms of the way that it was put into place, the yeah. way it was it gained the notoriety that it did. I have to say, the first three paragraphs kind of make me want to read it all. But uh, we'll save that for another time. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, at this pace, it'd take us a week to finish. But uh, huh. um, I th- yes, I think I think it will be a good thing to. I think I think the profundity of it just is the way it makes you think about the relationship with technology so far, right? Like that's I don't think that it's necessarily strong enough in these first three paragraphs to make you want to move out to the middle of the woods in Montana and live off the land, right? But it it might be useful in that it maybe. If next time you're with your significant other sitting on the couch, maybe maybe you don't watch TV or maybe you guys don't scroll on your phones. Maybe you spend a little bit more time with interaction and do something that doesn't involve technology that can be done together. That's kind of where, at this point, I'm getting uh, led. Yeah, I think that would be the constructive way of looking at it. Do you want to get into the catchphrase generator or is there anything else that you wanted to... Uh, now let's do the let's do the catchphrase. All right, so good point. Catchphrase generator is deify the finish. What does that mean to you? Deify is that kind of like a deity? Yeah, like uh, make holy. Deify the finish, so kind of glorifying the end. Uh, I would reject that and say that you have to deify the journey. I think deifying the journey is uh, would definitely be a better catchphrase. But I, I think <laughs> if you look at this in, maybe let's look at it through the lens of the Unabomber saga. Yeah. The manifesto was the last thing he did before getting arrested. No bombs came out after. Is there a way that maybe all of the crappy stuff he did, that the manifesto at the end could be the redeeming factor for him? and deify his legacy i don't know if you would ever want to deify his legacy but maybe to deify the end maybe de in this you you can glorify the capturing of a person who's causing you know some significant harm to society in terms of the fear that he's instilling um in terms of the people that he's hurting and has killed the families that he's impacted so maybe in this the way I would look at it is deifying the capturing of him, but maybe in some... the end of the saga, uh, hopefully, hopefully he doesn't uh, figure out how to send bombs from prison because he's still alive. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. We'll have to dig into that into the next one. What happens after he's arrested? Because I don't really know the rest of that. No, yeah, that'd be an interesting thing to look onto. Maybe, yeah, maybe we could uh, in the future kind of follow that story a little more and maybe find some other excerpts from this manifesto, maybe some that aren't so spot on or maybe some that are. Yeah. We'll be interested to break it down further. All right. With that, let's we'll close out from there. Thanks for listening. If you listened, if there's anyone left, (laughs) Craig leave. Yay.
The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.